real quick before we dive into this episode of the podcast. Be sure to grab your free PDF copies of my latest books at frugal.show forward slash free. Now on to the show. If you haven't already, be sure to grab your free copy of my first two books, Frugalpreneur and Authorpreneur, by going to thesarahstjohn.com forward slash free. That's T-H-E-S-A-R-A-H-S-T-J-O-H-N dot com forward slash free. Now on to the show. Welcome to the Frugalpreneur Podcast. I am your host, Sarah St. John, and today's guest is Dave Wogan from Author Imprints. Welcome to the show. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. And can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and and how you got into this whole business? Well, my background, technology and publishing, those two things. Years ago, I managed the IBM donation to the Olympics in 1984 and stayed in tech after that. And I actually ended up working for a very large publishing company, a Fortune 150 company at the time that's no longer here called Times Mirror. And they owned the LA Times and a number of other newspapers and book publishers. And I got very involved in new media, online stuff. And this I'm talking about back in the late late 80s, early 90s. And I was doing ebooks, and there was, I quickly discovered that no one had a way to distribute those. So that just kind of went away. And, you know, publishing was very challenging because of the distribution issue and ended up getting involved in the startups and managing those in the sports world and building uh, university websites, kind of came up with an idea to build it for their brand. It was kind of interesting, one of the first to do that. And then I had a golf directory, and my wife bought me a Kindle in, I think it may be 2008. Started playing around. People asked me to create ebooks, so I did that. And next thing you know, that became a much better business than the golf directory business. Yeah, I saw on your website that you were in the 1984 Olympics. You worked for them. And so what was it that you did again? You had mentioned it kind of in passing, but... Yeah, the, well, the, the Olympics is organized by the city. And they have an organizing committee. This is true of every Olympics that's held. It's done by the actual city, the host city. So you put together an organizing entity and and then they kind of fill that out like any business. And IBM in this case was the was a major sponsor, more than $10 million in those days. And it was actually the first year that they had a PC at the at the Olympics. And this is pre-Mac. I think there was Apple II out, of course, but what we had just, they would pull up trucks of IBM PCs and say, what do you want to do with them? So I was the one that had to tell people what to do with them. Oh, They didn't want, yeah, they didn't want the vendors telling people what they can and can't do. They want someone on the committee to do that. So we did that. And then that's kind of a big giant startup is what it was. And then during the games, I managed the Olympic Arrival Center at LAX all the technology that's located mm-hmm. there. So yeah, it was it was very early days. That was the year that AT&T was split up on January 1, 1984. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was a lot of, lot of milestones reached. I had one of the first cell phones in the whole United States. Everybody in our committee had those driving around in cars. They were too big of batteries to put in your pocket. <laughs> so yeah, dating myself. 
<laughs> wow, that that's really neat. That's uh, it's a bummer that the Olympics are being postponed this year. I was looking forward to that. I guess that's going to be next summer, but I can't even imagine what those poor people are doing <laughs> because there is. I just know how much work it is. It's so stressful. Mm. Uh, and then on the other hand, now they get a little breathing room, and you know, hopefully they can stay employed because that's mm. always the tricky part because it's a temporary job. You're only there for a few months. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, that would be a lot to reschedule, rearrange. Uh, <laughs> not yeah. not a job I would want. <laughs> yeah, it's worked for the athletes. I mean, they're in peak performance oh, for right now. Yeah, so they have to keep that going for another year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and can you tell us about your business author imprints and what you do there? Sure. Well, a few years ago when I was doing the... Ebooks, the corporate name is Cellbox, S-E-L-L-B-O-X. And it was really about online commerce. And I kept that name initially. But then after working with so many different authors and with my background in marketing and branding, I realized that no one was really, or very few were really making a point of kind of an author-centric publishing service. And I began to position the business and my advice in that way in saying that, Businesses and, and individuals, they don't really need to go to whether it's Outskirts or Lulu or Author House or some of these other what I call intermediaries, they could have their own imprint. So you can buy the ISBN and you can use these other services to publish the book and not have to pay markups on extra copies and all those other things. So at that point, and I think it was around 2015 or 16, I changed the name to Author Imprints. And that became the sole focus. So the focus actually hasn't changed much. Uh, it's just been more of a, of a crystallizing the message to be in support of authors that way. So as far as imprints go, you mean like where it'll say in the book, publisher's name, basically? Yeah, it'd exactly. Be, it'd be like your own name or, or some business that you create? Exactly. Exactly. That's what it is. And you, whoever owns the ISBN is the publisher, uh, technically is the publisher. Now, that, that may or may not mean something legally, but there are some consequences that people have to be aware of, whether it's branding or whether it's the ability to print your book someplace. So if you go to Amazon, which is by far the largest issuer of ISBNs, they have over, uh, over a million or 1.2 million in the last year it was, the data was released from Bowker, I think that was 2018. And they are the publisher of record. So when you go to KDP and you sign up for the print book and you say use the free one from CreateSpace or from KDP Print, that ISBN says that you've been published by Amazon. So it says independent publishing platform is the term that they've chosen for that. And what the the kind of the surprising thing for a lot of people is that the only company that can print your book at that point is Amazon. They don't make that very clear. But if you, for some reason, wanted to print up a thousand copies because you got an order from the armed services or from the corporate you know, program that wanted to get a whole bunch of copies, and of course, you can get it printed less expensively than POD, you can't do that. You have to go through Amazon. T technically, you can't do that. Oh, wow. That's in the contract. That's yeah, in the contract. Uh, yeah. yeah, I didn't realize that because I have a couple of books and I did it through Amazon. So 
Uh, I like the fact yeah. that the ISBN was free, but I guess there's a catch there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. And then you have some branding that I think, you know, just depends on the goals of the person. And I've written a couple books and articles on this stuff. And I'm always quick to point out that, look, if you, especially today's authors that are writing a lot of genre fiction, which is a hugely popular and, and just tons of, of books coming out in that, in, in, in those categories, you know, mystery, thriller, uh, romance, all that kind of stuff. Um, and a lot of those are ebook only. And there's, I had to say, I don't know if there's a reason to even buy an ISBN because a lot of those books do very well in KDP Select. Amazon doesn't require an ISBN. If you, you know, go to draft the digital, they'll give you one free. So unless you're concerned about the branding, then, you know, maybe it's really not that necessary. Or like I say, just publishing only on Amazon, then just use what they give you, mm -hmm. which isn't anything if it's an ebook, right? So basically, in order to have your own imprint, you have to be the one that buys the ISBN direct from Bowker. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so in in the back in the sixties, there was a United Kingdom was probably a leader in this area, and they got with a professor in uh, Dublin, and they came up with a numbering strategy called the ISBN, and then that has certain characteristics so that around the world, you can kind of keep, you can tell one book from another book. So if a book has a different language, it needs a different ISBN. If it's a different shape, you know, size, it needs a different ISBN. You know, you publish six by nine, say, oh, I'm going to do a five by seven, needs a different ISBN. But it was very confusing with a lot of books coming out is, okay, wh which country did that book come from? And, you know, is that, which edition is that? And and so they wanted to have a way to distinguish one book from another book. And so that's when that was really born, it was back in the, kind of in the 60s. And then they have since developed it to a longer number and, and so on. Kind of like a social security number, but for a book, sort of. Yeah, for, e for each individual book, right. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it identifies that publisher and the country of publication. So people are buying books, it's helpful for them. So that means that each country, there's only one entity who is authorized to sell those numbers. And each country makes a decision about how they handle those. So in Canada, they have a, a French uh, website and an English website, and ISBNs in Canada are free. They just decided we're not going to charge. And in the United States, of course, there, there's going to be a charge. And it's one company's Bowker. And it's the same company, Nielsen, in the United Kingdom. They're, they're um, related. They also charge for it. So it's turned into, it used to actually be pretty affordable to buy just a few ISBNs. And then they figured out, wow, we could make a lot of money. And so they really jumped the price up a lot. And that's why I think you find people pushing back about buying them. But it goes to your country. So I'll work with clients in other countries and tell them, you know, if you don't want to have a U.S. ISBN, then just go to your local country and purchase one there or get one free, maybe. Uh, they're probably less expensive than the United States. Yeah, and then I guess like Amazon or whoever, they get a bulk discount, I guess, when they because they probably order a whole bunch of ISBN numbers and then that's how they can give them away for free, I guess. They do, yeah. And, and so actually back in even 2014, 15 timeframe, you could buy a thousand for a thousand dollars. And and a single one is one hundred and twenty five dollars. So it just shows you the administration of it is pretty straightforward, and and the price drops very dramatically. Mm -hmm. Now it's a 
it's fifteen hundred dollars for a thousand. So they upped the price by fifty percent, and and you can buy that. And my guess is Amazon buying you know a million of those mm-hmm. plus per year is probably buying them at you know pennies, right? Mm-hmm. You know, twenty five cents or something like that. So <laughs> yeah, that's weird. You can buy one for one hundred and twenty five dollars, or buy a thousand for you know basically a dollar each. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's frustrating. I, I don't blame a lot of small publishers who kind of intuitively they could they could sense a value there but they're kind of locked out because of price wise or maybe no one's explained the value to them so Mm -hmm. those are the books i've written too in the articles it's just trying to educate the public about that so then when someone comes to you basically you have them buy the isbn i guess and then Mm -hmm. and then what do you do from there so they they will buy the isbn in the name of their imprint so they'll choose a name and again i I got a a book on that i got website articles on it too it's i mean there's a process to go through try to figure out that it's not some a a name somebody else is using you know not a trademark name that type of thing but but yeah they get the name usually they'll buy 10 because they kind of at least in the beginning you have you know high hopes of publishing more than a couple books and you need two to three possibly four depending on how many formats you're publishing in because you would need one for hardcover and you should have one for audiobooks as well although Amazon ACX doesn't doesn't display or use one same they're kind of like Kindle in that way or KDP but find a way does and so I I've, I've assigned an ISBN to my audiobook through that too Okay. So your clients, would they all be self-published authors or do you work with traditional as well? I'd say they're probably virtually all. I've got a client now that is a personal friend that I'll I'll help him. He's going to be traditionally published. So I had a call today with the publicist and we're talking about coordinating some efforts. But there's, you, you know, there's a limited things that you can do in my position to help a traditionally published author, um, usually associated more with their own personal marketing mailing lists and maybe personal profiles on different, you know, websites. But but in terms of, you know, like Amazon advertising or other kind of pricing strategies and changing prices, uh, you can't really do too much of that. So it's a little less ex- successful to for me to work with them. And what I tell people, I'm not a publicist either. So where a traditional publicist is going to reach out to bloggers and other media and influencers, they definitely work well with with self-published authors. But for me, we'll do online support in terms of marketing, say promotions and the own and the author's platform and any kind of Amazon specific marketing. But and so those things all tend to be focused on the author, not or the self-published author. That's most effective is for the self-published author. Do you help with like the editing and all of that kind of stuff, or is it more all the stuff that happens after the book has been? Yeah, so we do everything. So the 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 client will come, we'll have a conversation about what it is they're doing. I'm always careful to sell them what they need and not necessarily kind of overdo it. I make a point of saying we don't sell packages because I feel like every book's a little different. And some people feel like 
they want to have, maybe they had somebody design a cover, they want that flexibility themselves, but almost always it's going to be a, a print and or ebook together with distribution and metadata, that type of thing. And then maybe about half our books are edited and I have a fiction editor and a nonfiction editor and we work closely together to, you know, get the book ready so that once it is published, it, it is much cleaner to proof and, and roll it out. So I do like I really kind of push my, uh, we do free, you know, edits, a sample edit for the authors so that they can see the book. What happens oftentimes is that the authors say, oh, I, you know, I had somebody read it and I mean, six people read it and didn't find anything. And then we'll, I'll run it by Katie or Aaron and then they'll, they'll send back a list of things that need to be fixed. And it's like, oh my gosh. And the problem is that once they get it into print, and they get that PDF, then it's really more time-consuming to fix errors. If they want to rewrite something, if they want to, you know, tweak sentences, it becomes more onerous. And how many books do you have? About five, six books. I took one. I don't publish anymore. It was on self-publishing. It was on eBooks, and it was I published it back in I think 2013. I have a book reviewer, Yellow Pages, which I acquired from the publisher a couple years ago, and then. I have a three book series now that's on my called my publishing imprint register your book, which is all the registration ste steps and ISBN and barcodes and things like that. Library of Congress copyright. And then I have a book on reviews called the book review companion, because I discovered that was just such a massively important topic for a lot of authors. Yeah. And can you give us any kind of tips or advice on the best ways to get reviews? So what I what I tell people to do is think about it in terms of, I have actually a chart I show people. I have a post on Jane Friedman's blog that has this illustration. It says, you know, your closest contacts are the ones that are most likely going to review your book and most likely to be positive. Not that you even told them to be positive, just that that's going to be their nature to be a little more positive. So the, before you even publish, you should have some kind of a mailing list, some method of corresponding with your closest contacts to get them a copy of the book such that once it's launched, then they will you know, read the book and leave a review for you, an honest review, if they're, if they're so inclined, I like to say, because you can't force anyone to do it. That's your first group. And then you might have, and, and actually you might have like a launch team or some other people who are like really committed to doing that for you. Then you, you know, go a little further out in that, in that little, think about ripples, you know, in a, in a lake, right? So that first ripple is all those people who are in your launch team. The next ripple out goes a little bit further. And those are the people who, are on the mailing list, maybe some social media contacts, that type of thing. Somebody that knows, likes, and trusts you. And then a little further out might be, you know, could be a little broader, depending on how your platform works. Uh, that might be the social media, for example. And then the kind of the final ripple in this whole thing is just the public. And so what a lot of people do is they just go straight to the public, which is a huge mistake. And they put the book up and then they start thinking about a plan. Whereas if they could put the book up and have, usually my marketing clients will have five or 10 reviews after the first couple of weeks. And those are just to kind of get the ball rolling, right? So that when you do spend money on marketing and the person shows up at that page, that there are 
some confirmation. The book's got some reviews. Even if they don't read the reviews, even if they're mostly positive, they still have some reviews. And that person is going to linger on that page a little bit longer than if they just go there and they go, oh, my gosh, this thing has just been sitting here since August and it has no reviews. So, you know, that's how I try to encourage people is really kind of think in terms of having that plan in place. But also reviews are all are the other. There's two types of reviews, customer and editorial. So the editorial reviews is another thing. Either you're paying someone like a Kirkus to review the book, or you're you're hiring. There's a bunch of companies that will that have Amazon readers that you can pay some money to to do that. And usually that's on the customer side. But you might go to somebody that you know who's got a you know either a, a position with a firm that a lot of people might know, or they have a name that people might recognize. It just depends. Those are editorial reviews. And for a lot of people, maybe even a lot of your listeners, you know, I think one of the most effective reviews, editorials that you can have is find books like yours, look up those authors and popular books and see who those those other authors are and see if they'll review your book. And it depending on how you approach them, you might have some luck there. I mean, if you've really put together a quality book and they, you know, they can see their name associated with your book, they'll do that. And and I give examples in in the book review companion about specific authors on Amazon. And I actually list out here's the people who reviewed it. And in a lot of cases, the the self-publishing folks, we don't have money to spend on Kirkus, four hundred dollars or whatever, you know, and even a couple hundred dollars is a lot of money. But if you've written a good book, you can probably find some other people in your genre who will, you know, take a look at it and offer some encouraging words. Yeah, I hadn't heard that that idea before. That's pretty cool. I think I might have to try that approach and see. What is your opinion on like those book review sites? Yeah, I guess it just depends on the site. As I said, those are in the Gulf Book Reviewer Yellow Pages. I have it divided into bloggers who will post things. And then I have um, another section for blog tour organizers who will kind of run review tours for people. And then there's a business section where you have traditional reviewers, which is really hard to get into for a self-publisher. And you have services and you have what I call hybrids and you have, what was my fourth one? I have to think of it. The hybrid is somebody who says, We'll review X number of books per month or year. And if you don't want to wait, we only accept a certain number of these, uh, but you're welcome to pay us X dollars and we'll review your book. So I don't, whether or not that's a come on, you know, to say that they do some for free or not is another story. But those are what I would call the hybrid ones. Oh, and then there's paid. So like Kirkus is a paid one. That's an example of somebody that you would actually pay. So it's pay hybrid. I like the services ones, you know, whether it's hidden gems or, you know, Goodreads isn't that great, but I like the model of you're going to promote the book to a bunch of people who sign up. I don't know who's going to get the book and hopefully they'll write some reviews for it. And so those are, those are a real arm's length arrangement, which is kind of fits in with Amazon's rules that you're not really approaching an individual reviewer and saying, you know, I'll do this if you do that. That's what you want to avoid. And then there's other ones. Maybe this is what you're getting at. There's a few out there where you can just write a check and and they'll have people review and post reviews on Amazon. 
Yeah, I've used hidden gems for some things. They're they're really good. I like them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they're booked up, you know, months in advance. On your website, I was seeing stuff about republishing a book and repurposing a book. Mm-hmm. Like, when would you? Well, I guess when would you republish? I guess we'll talk about that first because <laughs> they're two different things. Yeah. So the republishing of a book that that's an area that's been pretty popular with. I'm just kind of going through my notes here on that. But it's it's a great – I have a lot of people that like to do that because they either had a problem with their publisher or they want to have more control. And so, for example, there's a, there's a publisher, which I believe this is common knowledge. Is it dog, dog-eared? press there's 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 publishers that will get into financial trouble and then the book will be stuck with that publisher right and and so that's kind of like one group of people who they want to make keep their book available to be purchased but they can't because it's it's locked up with this other publisher or they're not getting royalties or something like that so that's one the mo- most common is probably that the publisher has told the author, this is a traditionally published author, we're reverting the rights, you can have your book back. Or it's in the contract that after X number of years or if sales dwindle below a certain level, then you can have the book back. So that's that's a good reason some people don't like their publisher. <laughs> and, and it's maybe it's a little publisher and they're able to get out of their contract. I work with people in that in that situation as well. Tricky because those people, I'll, I'll just add this to it, Sarah, is that when you republish, you it can almost be like starting over, and you really need all those files. That is if you want to avoid the expense of republishing. And so if you were traditionally published, the publisher paid for the production files, the book cover, things of that nature. You may or may not have rights or access to any of that. And some some publishers have different policies. And, and so... In some cases, that's the first thing I'll do is, in fact, I usually charge people to even even have a conversation about this because the only way I can help them is to actually test the files prior to us having a conversation. Because they say, well, can I use these files? And I don't know until I spend you know, half an hour, hour and run it to my assistant and we upload it and see if we get errors and that sort of thing. And so getting those files... so. For people who, you know, so the one piece of advice that I give people, and this is in part of our commitment to our clients, is that you always get the source files. And and if you've self-published, you've paid somebody to produce those files, in my opinion, you should be getting those source files back. Usually that's an InDesign file, not just a PDF. And so I'd encourage, you know, your listeners, if they are in that situation to and they're hiring someone to help them publish, that that's part of their deal is they should say, well, if I want to get the files and we're all done, can I get that? And then they get them and they should put them in a safe place because they could give those to people like me and then we can we can take them apart and tell and make changes, you know, fix typos, create a new cover, all those kinds of things. And we don't have to redesign the book, which could end up being, you know, $1,000, $2,000. And then as far as repurposing, do you mean like taking a book and then just maybe turning it into blog posts or stuff like that? Different types of content? Yeah, there's so repurposing. I kind of divide it into 
you know, technically a hardcover is, you know, because most people are going to do a print book and an ebook. And you can take that paperback, at least through Ingram, and do a hardcover book pretty reasonably. So the interior files, we don't have to do anything for our clients. We just have to create a new cover for it. And using their systems is more complex, but you get a you get a hardcover, now you have another SKU, another product to sell someone. And you can use those. You don't have to sell them online. You could use them as a premium. You could, you know, somebody as a gift for people. I have a couple of clients that just, they just want hardcovers and they got the money to spend on it. So they'll, they'll pay the 10 or $12 to buy them and give them to their friends or family. And so it's, it's a nice thing. So that's one. Other ones, I think workbooks, audiobook excerpts, other bonus giveaways. You know, so I took the book review companion and what I was telling you, chapter six deals with editorial reviews, how to get them and how to use them. And so I give that away. That's up on davidwogan.com. And you can go there to Book Review Companion and listen to my audio chapter recording. It's not the entire book, but it's the audio. Cha- it's an audio book chapter for that, for that topic. I've been thinking about doing an audiobook. It's like you can either record it yourself, you can hire someone to do it, but now there's like AI and stuff. I don't I don't know. I'm going back and forth on the different options. <laughs> yeah, it's I think it just depends on the author if uh it is I can tell it's exhausting as I've recorded a few. My son actually does all our mastering. He's a producer. And so he will take he'll do the recording session and he'll uh, master the files and then do the distribution to find a way or ACX. If he works with an author, they can send him the files and he'll do the mastering that way or, you know, do a sound check, have him make improvements, that type of thing. And they just eat the client just emails him the files and he takes care of it. Fiction is kind of tricky because you got to have different voices or you probably should have different voices. And like I say, it's exhausting. I, I, that's why, I, to be honest, I didn't read the whole book review companion because it was just like, oh gosh, you know, because I did my publishing imprint is a is an audio book, and I did register your book a couple years ago, and there was just so much work that I didn't think I was going to get a return on that investment, and I thought that it'd be better to do an excerpt from it, and it makes it kind of a unique, shareable thing, and that's something you do. You write nonfiction or fiction? Nonfiction. Nonfiction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you might take some piece of the nonfiction and, you know, turn that into an audiobook. And there's some, you know, some pretty good tools. I don't know about the AI part of it. I, I hear that. I, I'm not sure how that really works for quality because it, mm-hmm. it's one of those things that we can deal with with crummy audio, uh, excuse me, with crummy video. But audio is really annoying when it doesn't sound good, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. It's almost like even reading, you could probably put up with a few typos, but somehow audio is a, is a tough one. People don't want to listen to bad recordings. Well, I appreciate your time today, and I think you've answered all my questions, but was there anything else that you wanted to go over? No, I, I think we, we covered a range of things. Like I say, you know, for folks that want to try to save money, I think the tools that are out there now are... Are, are terrific for that. Just be mindful of, you know, things that are free <laughs> and be certain about, you know, what what your long-term plan is there because the 
once you make that decision, you can't really change it because you might lose your book reviews. Like I'm talking about ISBNs and things. You know, I think if you if you're thoughtful about that, depending on what the work what you're doing, there's there's a lot of ways that you can publish inexpensively these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I love that. That's one reason I got into it was because it's pretty affordable to do now. So. All right. Well, if people want to find you, they can go to authorimprints.com or davidwogan.com. And then I'm also going to have show notes at the sarahstjohn.com forward slash author imprints. Excellent. If you enjoyed and found value from this episode, I'd greatly appreciate it if you rate, review, subscribe, and share at ratethispodcast.com forward slash frugalpreneur. Until next time. Are you a frugalpreneur looking to connect with like-minded individuals? Join our community on Slack, connect with fellow listeners, share your thoughts on episodes, engage in meaningful discussions, including money-saving tips and entrepreneurial insights, and help shape the future of the Frugalpreneur podcast. Plus, you can submit your questions in written or audio form to be featured on the show. Let's build a supportive space together. Join us now at frugal.show forward slash slack. See you on the inside.